Well, hello, hello, hello out there, folks. Another big build-up. I just hope I can live up to it, that uh, bumper music sometimes that I play. Those of you on the podcast don't hear it, but it's uh, it makes me seem like I better be doing something pretty interesting. So let's let's give it a shot. What do you say? Welcome back, folks. Another week goes by. I hope I sound okay. I was pretty uh, congested this week, and uh, I don't like the sound of that. But I can't tell because for some reason I cannot hear anything but what's in my head, right? <laughs> and, you know, putting headphones on doesn't do any good. It's, you hear the same sound. It's hard for you to sort out what it sounds like. But if I sound a little congested, I apologize, folks. I'll be right as rain soon. But I didn't want to pass up the chance to talk to you folks. So hope you had a good week. Uh, let's see what happened this week that was surprising. Well, nothing really. Uh, Twitter spying on us all the time. If they're, well, Google spying on us. The others are also spying on us. Twitter sort of spying on us and making sure we can't put any of our own opinions up when we want to and then lying about it. And then, of course, uh, Herschel Walker lost in uh, Georgia, which was no surprise at all. Not because Herschel's a bad guy, but because that was just the way it was trending. And, uh, I, I just knew he had an uphill fight. I thought he might lose by two or three points, and he lost by a little less than two, as I recall. I haven't checked the final today. But, uh, you know, and they got Warnock. And, and, you know, Warnock is, well, he, he's a far leftist, if there can be such a thing. I don't even know how you label it. These guys aren't coherent enough on their policies to be communists. I mean, I, I hesitate to taint communism with their weird ideas that are like all over the place. They're just sort of progressive, communist, socialist. Uh, if I could have a whistle and uh, maybe hop up and down to simulate uh, some sort of craziness, I'd interject that into the description of it. But yeah, I mean, I don't, they're, they're just they're just nuts, and they're panderers. They pander for a living. They try and find discrete groups that have particular interests. Many of them involve getting something for nothing, and then promise everybody something, and at the same time. Attack the other side as being against those interests. Rather that's true or not, or even arguably true, or even true in any sense, or even slightly demonstrable. It doesn't make any difference. They just say it. And since they own the media, and apparently, as we're finding out, the Internet, uh, it's pretty difficult to, to fight that sort of impression. And here we are. We're going to have a 5149 Senate. Uh, Chuck Schumer is going to go crazy. Uh, he's going to now probably bring every nut job that's been selected to be a federal court judge by other nut jobs, and uh, they're just going to sail through, and they're going to populate the federal bench with politicians, bad politicians, politicians who were not, neither well-spoken enough, attractive enough, or had enough backing to get elected to office, will just be appointed to the federal bench. Well, they'll live there for the rest of their lives on your dime and fight Hardly against everything you believe in. There you go. Oh, and the Constitution. You can forget about learning about that. With these guys in charge, it won't be something that anybody has spent a lot of time talking about. I mean, it'll pop up in their decisions periodically, but as a document, it'll have no real meaning to them. And the Federalist Papers written by the people about the Constitution and what they meant it to do, ooh, I mean, that's been out of style for a while now. It'll really be gone. So they'll be populating that for for quite some time. Perhaps we could get a little bit further ahead with it, though. Maybe we can, if we're lucky enough, hold up a couple of these. There, there are some there is some hope in the Senate now. If the House can hold the line on a lot of these new laws and things like that, in other words, fight against them. So far, you know, I'm a little, eh, 
I think, yeah, kind of sums it up. We'll see how they do. I mean, Republicans are notoriously bad when it comes to holding the line on anything. And they do manage to, if nothing else, they do manage to exacerbate their own weakness. Yes, that's true. It's seldom something that you see. It's sort of like if you were in a huddle during a football game and the message was something like this. You know, we're not very good with first down passing. So since it's the first down, I think we should pass. This is kind of the Republican philosophy in a, in a sense. Uh, do what you're not good at. Uh, also, uh, we have a lot of back and forth. Uh, there's a lot of vision on the team. So we would like to make that more pronounced and get nothing done and lose the game rather than compromise amongst ourselves and decide that the other team should lose. That's another sort of summation of the position of the Republican Party in many instances, particularly the National Party or the State Party if you're here in Colorado where I'm at. Anyway, as we move forward on these things, uh, you know, this, this week is an opportunity for regrouping. Not all is bad. We do have Congress in the sense of the House of Representatives. We can stop things. There's only so many judicial posts open because most of the time these judges hold on to their positions like grim death because well, where else can you get a job that gets paid extremely well? You have a lot of authority and power. You have all sorts of clerks and stuff that work for you. You pretty much do what you want, and you can't be fired. Now, why would you give up a job like that? <laughs> of course you're going to stay in there. So there's there's a fair amount of openings, but... You know, a lot of these guys aren't going anywhere, so we'll hopefully that pure laziness and inertia will keep the court from changing any more than it has to. Uh, there was something interesting a few years ago, and I, I think I mentioned it here before. The people that come up on the bench, aside from being ideologically tilted, uh, especially now, you also have a situation where there's a lot of people uh, on the bench who don't have any life experience, who have been intellectually immersed either as a teaching someplace, and I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt instead of saying activists, but even people who have been just pure academics or have worked in government their whole time, uh, have done one thing, you know, uh, and they get put on the bench, and the federal court especially has a lot of really complex issues come before it. Not the ones we see so much, but things involving telecommunications, very complex contract situations that take place between companies between states, big dollar questions about uh, people that are suing each other for fraud and, and corporate transactions, you know, things that are are complex and drawn out and tedious. And the Supreme Court a few years ago had put out a paper where they were concerned. This is interesting considering the makeup of it. Think about a couple of the justices on there and their intellectual level. But they were concerned that so many of the new judicial appointments to the federal bench really had no experience, and far too many of them were just government lawyers, you know, people in the Department of Justice and things like that. They were just being appointed to the federal bench and brought nothing to it, no understanding of business, no understanding of transactions, no understanding of all the things that, that people are involved in in everyday life, because that's what courts are for, is to help resolve disputes between people in everyday life. And if they have no experience in it at all, many of them have never been practicing lawyers like you and I would think of. They've just been government lawyers or they've done one thing or they've been, you know, a, a teaching position like the last Supreme Court appointee, Katenji Brown Jackson. And 
they've just never gone out. And, of course, the vast majority of them have never worked in the sense that they've started their own practice, which is essentially a, a small business. So they have none of that going on. And then they're they're immediately presented with all of these complex fact situation. And let's not forget real-life situations. These involve real life and the behavior of actual people. And when you don't have much experience with that, or if you were sort of a low-rent version of Barack Obama and some sort of community organizer slash lawyer and made your way up through some sort of uh, not-for-profits until finally, you know, somebody uh, reached out and you kissed the ring and they be- you became a judge and-, and got to spend the rest of your life making a lot of money and, well, you know, whatever. There's, I'm not to say there's not good ones because there are some good ones. Actually, one of the guys I went to law school with is a very good federal court judge. He's a matter of fact, the, uh, the chief judge of a court of appeals. Uh, there's a few out there, but like I say, eh, there's 10% of the lawyers are decent. And so once in a while, you can find one. And there are some up there, but just the idea that you can have people ideology aside and all this other stuff keep getting appointed out of government and these and institutions. They don't know anything about your life. And someday you may be in there asking them to sort out some situation for you. And they've got no clue about how regular people earn a living or how some of these uh, complex situations arise. They've never been involved in them. That's not a good situation. So uh, there's a lot of reasons to watch people who become judges at all levels, especially the federal level where they're there forever. Oh, yes. I like to see myself as a soldier of fortune. Although I'm not very good at it, I would assume if you're a soldier of fortune, at some point you would find a fortune. I'm still looking. But I am a soldier of fortune, so I have my fingers crossed. By the way, folks, I don't think I mentioned that this is Rick Wagner in the last segment. Right here at KNZZ, KGLN, we are at 1192.7, that would be AM, FM, as well as 980 and 101.3. So we're all over the place. Also, we're on the Internet. We're being broadcast live on the internet and we also are of course on the web as podcasts so if you miss the show and you're interested in what's going on you can uh, go to my website the rickwagnershow.com strangely enough that i would be on that website and uh, you'll see a link to where our, our podcasts are and of course the usual stuff up there some interesting videos that i found and a lot of interesting stories that i post in the middle and then all sorts of news feeds from all over the place that you can find at that. That's the rickwagnershow.com. And some of you who uh, are Internet presence out there, we use uh, one which I all think is great, uh, politicalviking.com. So either one of them will get you that page. And here's uh, a couple of things I wanted to bring up from my notes on that. One of them isn't up there yet, or isn't up there, I should say, because I, I just wanted to say I was reading something in The Federalist this week, and it was about a, a – Netflix special that I happened to start had started to watch, and they were recommending really to watch it. And there's a guy out there named Graham Hancock, and Graham Hancock is a journalist who's researched for quite some time now uh, a lot of archaeological evidence out there because his belief, based a lot on what he's found, and it's pretty interesting, is that the timeline for how long human civilization has been around. Uh, that's generally accepted by the archaeological community, is perhaps not right. And he visits a lot of really interesting archaeological digs around the around the globe and that show things that were very, very advanced in terms of the time that clearly were much older than archaeologists were able to place them at the time. Two or three of them, they don't even offer explanations. It's modern archaeology just doesn't quite understand 
how something that this sophisticated they dug up, like in uh, Turkey, uh, and there's a couple in the Americas, too, that are very interesting, North America, that appear to be much older than they thought would could exist before, and they don't really have an explanation for it. Very interesting stuff. And one of his is he thinks that this entire, uh, what we think of it sometimes as a legend, but it, it did happen, and we, we can find it in the geological record, this enormous flood that uh, swept over the world from some sort of, I don't want to call it climate, but some sort of catastrophic events that happened to the earth about 13,000 years ago that caused uh, the seawaters to rise. Uh, we had some melting from the glacial age at that time. And, I mean, the whole uh, shape of the earth changed to some extent in terms of the, the seacoasts. Uh, islands became underwater or parts of them did. Very interesting. And that's well documented. One of his theories or questions he asks is, was there some civilization in place at the time that was a little more advanced? Now, this isn't the, were they flying spaceships and communicating with the inner Earth that's hollow? No. He's just saying, was there a, a relatively advanced civilization in place that was destroyed during that time? And some survivors of that civilization after this apocalyptic episode, because we know obviously humans survived this, although in some places it was pretty thin, uh, were they around and somehow spread some of this knowledge because there's some uh, temples and things that are on various places around the globe, as I said, that are much older than they seem to be able to explain now that we're a little more sophisticated in our dating and so forth. And yet they seem to be beyond the capabilities of the people that we thought were living there. So was there some knowledge that was found from maybe a prior civilization that was older than we know existed? I, I don't know what to think about it. But his stuff's really pretty good. I mean, it's, if it, nothing else, and he doesn't try and force that on you. He just raises some questions, and he says, this is what I think might be an answer. And I enjoyed watching it quite a bit, and I found out when I read The Federalist that who uh, the author there had been watching it and really enjoyed it. And it's called, by the way, before I forget, it's called uh, Ancient Apocalypse on uh, Netflix, if you have Netflix. Quite good. It's a series. They're 30 minutes uh, each. And well, wa- very watchable. I, I enjoyed it. And you can think what you want to about it, but it's very fascinating. And he was watching it and he said that he found out that archaeologists have been trying to get Netflix to, if not ban it, to call it science fiction and all kinds of things like that. And you know, this isn't that ancient astronaut stuff, which who knows, that might be true. That from, you know, like the seventies and early eighties, this is just something else. And, uh, he asks a lot of questions and it takes you some really interesting places, you know, that to, to look at that really make you think. But he said all the archaeological society now are trying to get it banned and it's very reminiscent of COVID stuff. This whole, everybody's figured out how to pressure media and especially things that come across the internet in some way, even Netflix, which essentially does, uh, in its own way, uh, to either ban it or, to relabel it as crazy or something. It's really sad. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a documentary showing a bunch of different things and some opinions that he and some other people in archaeology now have about these things. And, you know, it's a lot of fun to watch. So the fact that they were so against it, I wanted to make sure I watched it because it's, it's apparently getting a lot of views on Netflix. And I want to make sure it gets plenty of views because people are against it and want to uh, censor it. And there's no reason to, and I hate to see that win. But it, I'd recommend it to you. It's just a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Ancient Apocalypse. But another thing I want to talk about this segment, let's see if I can get through it. And this I did post on the uh, on the webpage, therickwagnershow.com, and I would recommend you read the article. It's not that long. 
Uh, and it's posted under the title from the uh, New York Post that I picked it out of, called Military Official Flags Mom to the Police After She Criticizes Facebook at Schools, rather, Polysexual Poster on Facebook. This this woman, who is a mom in New Jersey, uh, went to a math night at her school, and uh, she saw all these posters up. And there's some pictures of these posters. And, you know, this is a seven, seven-year-old, is her daughter. And they put all this LGBTQ stuff up, and then they have all of these flags on, on this one poster, like pansexual, asexual, transgender, agender. It's a new one. You know, and her daughter, who's seven, was asked, what is that? You know, and she was said that she was shocked. She said, I don't think someone uh, my daughter's age at seven ought to be exposed to this kind of stuff and try to explain what it is to people and, that, you know, and be involved in uh, – Whatever it is they're trying to get them to do, she says it's just not appropriate. And I read her post, and it's not very inflammatory. Plus, she's a very reasonable person. Well, turns out that there's a military base near her, a military base. Let's keep that in mind. And it has uh, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Schilling of Joint Base McGuire Dix Lakehurst. My, that's a lot of names, isn't it? And he took issue with her post. I mean, this is this is a lieutenant colonel at a, the command's military base, and he starts sending stuff out. And this is what he, this is the lieutenant colonel said on his own Facebook page. Schilling claimed there were security concerns with this woman's post, adding that the joint base is working with local law enforcement to monitor the situation and ensure the continued safety of the entire community. All right. So this military base is monitoring this mom's Facebook page and working within their own, shall we say, mechanisms to monitor her and work with local law enforcement. And uh, let's see here some more. The current situation involving Ms. Redding's actions has caused safety concerns for many families, he wrote. The joint base leadership takes the situation very seriously. I wonder who the joint base leadership is besides him. And from the beginning, have had the security forces, listen to this, working with multiple state and local law enforcement agencies to monitor the situation and ensure the continued safety of the entire community. That's a military officer in command of a military base addressing this woman's Facebook post about she was concerned about her seven-year-old being exposed to very complex sexual ideas by the school. That was a military commander. And... Fox News, who they're reporting on this through the post, uh, the joint base confirmed to Fox News that it, that it notified law enforcement about the social media exchange, which is common information sharing practice among local, among law enforcement entities. It just gets worse and worse. So we we have the military base apparently monitoring and policing this woman's Facebook posts. If that isn't, if some of this language doesn't just freeze the blood in your veins, I don't know what does. They're very concerning, and I would suggest bordering on illegal in the sense that military officers are not law enforcement officers. This would be inappropriate for a law enforcement officer. Apparently, they also uh, talked to the local law enforcement. I was trying to find the little section on that where they they talked to the chief of police. Uh, By that, I mean the joint base apparently talked to them and uh, got some response, and she was saying here, let's see, 
Let's see. The administrator of the Facebook group that she was writing on, the mom, told her that North Hanover Police Chief Robert Duff reached out urging her to remove it. Her This means her Facebook page. And uh, apparently there was a quote from somebody in here. I don't want Homeland Security coming after me. Take the post down. I don't want to be dealing with this. So the mom apparently took it down. I, I just want to alert you to that and take a look at that. And it's one of these things that you see it. And it just makes your head spin, and not in a fun kind of carnival way. That's right, folks. I thought I'd uh, play the theme song for Kevin McCarthy uh, taking over uh, the uh, leadership of the House, most likely. Um, so for those of you that didn't hear it, I played the theme for Mighty Mouse. That's right. Mighty Mouse is a situation well in hand. For those of you too young to remember Mighty Mouse, and many of us are, but uh, he was a Mighty Mouse who uh, took care of a lot of problems. He was sort of the uh, rodent Superman, uh, so we may be giving Kevin a little bit more, uh, giving him more credit than he deserves. All right, I think we'll start this. It's being a holiday month here. I thought I would start out with just a little bit of uh, advice, trying to give everybody, you know, something you know, to sort of boost themselves, a little advice of what's going on uh, for the holidays and so forth. Now, we've already given you some some very good advice that I take to heart really daily, and that is that uh, advice we give you from uh, the Eagles, where you don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy, which I think is just excellent advice. Another piece that I thought I would give from the uh, movie Once Upon a Time in the West, which was uh, yet another spaghetti western with a pretty good cast in it let's see i'm trying to think who it was uh, henry fonda plays a bad guy in it uh, ominously named frank yeah yeah a lot of good people in it and but frank the bad guy gives a great piece of advice that i thought i would share with everybody just as going forward it helps you evaluate people and what he said was now this is something that you may want to write down Never trust a man who wears a belt and suspenders because you can't trust a man who doesn't trust his own pants. Now, some of you may be making that fashion mistake. You got to trust your pants, okay? One or the other. It's tough, I know. But that was <laughs> that was his that was his observation in the movie. I thought I'd just pass that on. It's the holidays. We all need good advice to get through them. Let's look at a couple of things that happened here this week, uh, towards the end of the week. I, I thought I'd talk about the Kristen Cinema thing a little bit. I know you've heard a lot about it back and forth. Oh, yes, well, it, it means a lot. No, it doesn't mean anything. Yes, it means it. So, you know, it means a little bit. It actually is a big slap into the face of Biden and Schumer, especially Schumer. My guess is that what's been going on with Kristen Cinema, you know, the senator from Arizona, who has proved to be something of a maverick, and a maverick in the right way from time to time, unlike uh, good old John McCain, but she has definitely had the opportunity to make some differences in the Senate, and uh, she has. So I'm going to give her some credit for that. When she was first elected, I remember thinking, oh, man, because she is such a loon in many ways. But, you know, she settled into into kind of a... Uh, a stabilizing force, I have to say. And she's obviously more trustful than Manchin. Now, she did waffle on this uh, last vote, of course, on the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. She shouldn't have voted for that. And she got a little something, you know, on her plate, too. 
Manchin, of course, is the one that got uh, kind of both ends chopped off, head and tail. He uh, went ahead and voted for it, negotiated secretly for it, all that good stuff. And then uh, at the end of the day, it's still unclear, and I would say that's not a great shot, that he's going to get his reward for uh, betraying everybody. Remember, uh, he was supposed to get this these things that he'd go back to his state and say, look what I've done for you. Well, he uh, has really hammered everybody by voting for the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, which I just love saying because it's the most ridiculous thing. Um, it's just in, emblematic of Washington is that you label something that it is not. Not only that it is not, most times they label things that are the opposite of what they sound like. And that's one of them. And so he votes for that. And then he just waits for his reward. You know, Chucky and I, we negotiated me a reward. Where's my reward? Well, the Republicans can't stand him because he snuck around and uh, negotiated with Schumer when he claimed he wasn't. And then he had the progressives, as you know, very mad at him because he wouldn't, you know, and I got to give him some credit. He held the line on this uh, getting rid of the filibuster and... You know, all this other nut job stuff. So they're mad at him. But in, like I said at the very end, we talked about this before. I mean, I'm willing to give him credit, but it's the last thing you do, kind of, you have, have to kind of look at. It's a Benedict Arnold problem. Great general up until that very end when he wants to surrender West Point and help him catch, uh, surrender General Washington to the British. So that seemed to overpower a lot of that stuff he's done in the past. This was kind of maybe not quite that big, but, you know, it's in that ballpark. And so, uh, you know, he he's just sitting there twiddling his thumbs, very angry that he hasn't got what he was rewarded to. And in the meantime, in West Virginia, people are working really hard to make sure that they have a good campaign against him. And he's going to have a good Republican challenger this time. And shoot, the way things were going with the with the progressives, he'd be lucky if he doesn't have a primary opponent. So he's got real problems. Cinema, she's had some real issues in Arizona with the progressives. They are looking hard for somebody to run against her as a far-left candidate. Hard to say what would happen. I mean, I can't tell what's going on in Arizona anymore. Their voting problems, obviously, sure, all over the place. The electorate can't quite figure out what they're doing down there. I still feel like it's marginally conservative. And... She has had an issue in the past with really defining herself. And when she was elected, she defined herself more or less as a progressive. She hasn't really done all that much. She's voted for a lot of progressive stuff. But when it, when it's come down to the last little bit, the last payment towards crazy, she hasn't done it, except for the Inflation Reduction Act. And so she knows it's going to be a hard fight down there. So this changing to becoming in, an independent not only is it a uh, you know a middle finger to Joe and to Chuck Schumer who I suspect was mean to her <laughs> and outside of the progressives and the AOCs and whatnot just I think that they just tried to beat her into submission and she just wouldn't do it I'll give her credit for that too she's got some uh, uh, internal fortitude so I think this was a, a way to sort of give that to him and also it I can't tell. It may be signaling she may not run again. It's going to be weird to try and run as an independent in uh, Arizona. It's not impossible. But it'll be interesting to see. We'll know more within the next three or four months if her whole campaign 
starts changing because, you know, a lot of people are working for her are Democrats and they may not want to continue working for her, even if they like her, because it's going to blackball them from working for other Democrats. So she's going to have to make big changes in some of her offices. And if she's going to have a campaign committee set up, she's going to have to do that pretty soon. And we'll have to see how that staffed or, you know, we won't have to look into, but we'll hear it. And we'll see if she's going to run again. It's just a strange situation. As far as the Senate, it, it's really annoying for the Democrats. But she's going to have to caucus with one of the two parties. Uh, the Senate rules, which if there's anything that ties them down to things, it's their own rules. Remember, the, the rules of the Senate are not in the Constitution or really anywhere. They make them up. And so the rules of the Senate are that you have to caucus with somebody. Otherwise, you don't really have an opportunity to get seats on uh, committees and things like that. So she's probably going to caucus. It sounds like she's caucusing with the Democrats. But what's scary about that is that she's enough of a wild card where she could decide tomorrow to go caucus with the Republicans, which would make it 50-50 again. And they don't like that at all. What would be really interesting, and I don't think this will happen, be really interesting if uh, she caucused with uh, the Republicans and they somehow convinced Manchin to do the same thing. <laughs> I mean, it would be so wonderful to see that happen. After all this time and money to get Warnock in there, who was just not even really an American, as near as I can tell, in terms of his outlook. <laughs> and uh, everything they've done to have the whole thing blow up with these two people. It would just be deliciously funny. <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen. But she she can she can be a wild card on this stuff because Manchin needs to burnish his credentials as being pretty a conservative Democrat. Otherwise, he is not going to win again. And I don't think he's going to win again anyway in West Virginia. But he really can't screw around with this stuff and be too progressive this next two years. And she doesn't sound like she wants to. And there's going to be a couple, three other senators in there that are not looking at easy races. Now... As much as we wanted this red wave in the Senate, we have to look at the reality of it. As we know, the Senate is up. A third of the Senate is up every two years. And it just depends on the luck of the draw, what states, what races, all that good stuff. And sometimes the draw comes out to where a is a good situation for Republicans, sometimes it's a good situation for Democrats. Really, this last time uh, was a better situation for Democrats in terms of seats they had to hold. And Republicans had to flip some tough seats to get up on it. Now, everybody was all starry-eyed about the red tsunami and all this stuff, you know, and uh, poor Kudlow was out there talking, oh, November is coming. Every time I heard that, I was like, oh, no. Every time Republicans say that, something bad's happening. Because they, they immediately get somehow overconfident. And Kevin McCarthy and the rest, of uh, Ronna McDaniel, who's, of course, what is she, the niece of... Uh, Mitt Romney, <laughs> she's got to go. I mean, come on. I mean, they had no coherent message. McCarthy, I think we should probably support the idea that he should be speaker, not because he's my favorite speaker. Like I said, he's the mighty mouse. He's uh, done a little bit by being a little bit. But if we get too tangled up in a fight, we allow the, the Democrats to start cutting deals and doing things to try and uh, get involved in our own politics about who's going to be speaker. And before you know it, it hamstrings what's a pretty small majority anyway. So he's probably the best choice to stop 
too much internal fighting. Would I like to see Jim Jordan? Yeah. Andy Biggs be better? Sure. In terms of their, you know, their political alignment. But if we're going to fight so much and then end up not getting, you know, anything out of it except turmoil and a weakened approach to things, I don't think that's worth it. I understand the desire not to see him sitting up there by some people. I interviewed him years ago and found him to be just exactly like he appears to be now, a fast talker, uh, sort of a uh, Lindsey Graham kind of person where there's a lot that is said and little that is done. And I think that what we're going to see is probably some of that. But there's a pretty hardcore group in there that want to see a few things done, and a few of them are going to have to be done. This Majorca situation, I mean, he's got to go. Now, we can't get rid of him, really. Remember, the House could impeach him, which means that they can get a bill of impeachment passed. But to actually impeach him and move him to office, he's got to go through the Senate. And he needs 60 votes in the Senate, and the, he, he's not going to get them. He could be personally driving into Mexico with a van and filling people up and driving them, filling it up with people and driving the United States, and the Democrats will not get him rid of that guy. And he is a horrifically bad person in terms of this job. I mean, he, he is un, you know, he is unfaithful to the Constitution. He has no relationship whatsoever with the truth. And he appears to be some sort of psychopath or a sociopath. Anyway, when questioned, he's quite willing to say things that are, that are wildly and demonstrably untrue and just nod and, oh yeah, things are great. And, and, you know, move on from it. Not many people could do that. And uh, it's this bad, bad situation in in that job, and I think they may need to, to may need to impeach him and send it to the Senate. I mean, he's not going to go anywhere, but it might send a message. I'm not sure it doesn't send a message that we can't get anything done, but I think it would send a message that we're at least serious about it. He's a real problem. Well, many people would like to see Merrick Garland impeached too. Well, they could probably get they could probably bring that, but he's running the FBI and all everything in the Department of Justice as a personal hit squad on uh, Republicans and conservatives. And he's got a lot of, you know, a lot of help. We see what's happening on Twitter. We see what happens with Google, Facebook, everything else. I see the problem with Google because, you know, remember Google owns YouTube and I think Instagram. And like us, we've been experimenting for months now with uh, some YouTube videos. And we not made any real effort to, you know, they're out there made some YouTube videos and got some views, but nothing very strong because we've done nothing to promote them or anything because we're just experimenting with them. And what we found is that YouTube is just all over you and content and looking for certain phrases, and they're very obscure when they have a problem about why they limit your video and how it doesn't fit into something. They won't tell you clearly what the problem is, and you you have a hard time working on it and fixing it there's the system is is a black box and i've said that before one of the problems with the internet in general is that it's controlled by these algorithms which are just you know a series of gated mathematical uh, equations that allow you know a question to be asked as an example and if this then that and then that then this then that you know it's a series of yes no answers that that the algorithm essentially works on and then you construct algorithms to say, if I find this, then I do that. And then once I do that, then I consider this. And then so that's one of the things that gets turned loose really electronically through, you know, mechanical 
rather electronic means. We can call them the bots, which are just cybernetic uh, programs, little programs that go in and they look at things like your phrasing and the word use and where two words are, how close are these two words, and then it must mean this. And then that triggers all sorts of things. So without understanding that, without that being made available to you, uh, they can put the screws to things in ways that you can't really detect. It just keeps having problems and doesn't get distributed and, you know, and you, you can't tell. There's no one to talk to. You're not, you're not going to be talking to a real person unless you're just extremely fortunate. You're always going to be at best emailing. And when you're emailing or chatting, they love chatting, you have a, a very strong feeling that you're not talking to a real person anyway. <laughs> you're talking to another bot. So, you understand how how that goes, and so so they have a strong support uh, in what they're doing out there in uh, the cyber world. So Merrick Garland is a he's a hard person to get, and it would just it'll just look you, you got to pick one of these guys. Right. And Merrick Garland's the most annoying, but I think if you the one you can make the strongest case for uh, is probably Mayorkas, and maybe they try that early on, knock that thing out of there. Send it up to the Senate. Senate can do nothing with it, and then that'll be the end of it. But at least the effort was made, and you, and don't spend too much time on it. I mean, it's uh, this guy's obvious. I mean, you, how much time do you spend on it? Spend the same time on it as the Democrats spent on the second impeachment of Trump, you know, which was not a very long program for the second impeachment of anybody, much less a sitting president. So that would be my advice on that. But cinema is, is not going to change a whole lot, but she may be able to be a problem on, you know, large-scale things they want to do in the Senate. And, of course, the Senate's problem is they can't do a lot of things without it coming up through the House. And remember that bills involving the expenditure and allocation of money have to originate from the House. It doesn't feel like that anymore. Everybody's got a proposal for money. The president... If you would think the president could propose legislation. He can't. He has an idea for legislation. They talk about it like he's proposing it. Then he has to give it to somebody in the appropriate House or Senate chamber to put that thing into motion. He can't do it. He can't even put a budget out there. He can create a budget and say, this is what we think we need. But even in today's perversion of the Constitution, we haven't got to that point yet. And remember, one of the things that was a problem with Obama, and they did this a little bit with Biden here, is wholesale transfers of money to the executive. You know, huge amounts to go for nebulous programs, very little line item. Just, you know, I think we need a couple of trillion here for uh, stuff that will make things better. And I maintained at that point, a lot of people did, that there that there's a separation of powers issue that the, the House, for instance, just can't abrogate its ability to control the expenditure of money and just give money to the executive and say, there you go, whatever you need, just take it out of that. I think that is extra-constitutional. It's, it's not something contemplated by it. I don't think the people who wrote the Constitution thought we would see that happen, but we do. And there's a little of that with Biden. The House, you know, what do you do when one of the branches of government just throws its hands up and says, yeah, we're not doing our job. That's it. We'll just let somebody, we'll just give them the money. We'll go home. Remember, these guys, especially in the House, they've been voting remotely from all over the place, home, 
apparently Europe, you know, because they're, you know, Nancy was just letting them do it. It's not even a real job. It's more like uh, calling in on a game show or something, you know. <laughs> they're not they're not required to even be there. So uh, I, I just don't know where that line is, but it's something to think about. Someday we're going to have to have some confidence in the court. Someone's going to have to ask these questions. They're going to have to bring some sort of suit uh, on these things. The problem with all these lawsuits that involve these constitutional questions is standing. The courts use standing to boot you out all the time with these kinds of questions. Because just being a taxpayer, just being somebody that is generally uh, impacted by these things doesn't get you past that. Well, you don't have standing. And just If we let everybody bring a lawsuit about everything, we wouldn't get anything done. Well, as near as I can tell, we're not getting anything done anyway. But now, that's the theory, and it's understandable. So they want to say, okay, you can only bring a lawsuit if you are directly and specifically impacted by the action. And just being a taxpayer is not enough. And this is, so uh, you have to find the right situation. You have to find the right plaintiff to, so that the court has a hard time bouncing it out and make them confront the issue of say, look, uh, we need to have something about you know, how much responsibility the legislature has to take for its own job. You know, that, that here, here's, here's what's outlined that it's supposed to do in the Constitution. And there's some decisions about that, some early decisions especially. And we need you to say, to the, we're saying this to the Supreme Court, that doing this, in other words, just writing a blank check essentially to the administration, is not constitutional. We just need you to say that, that, you know, care has to be taken and some attempt to oversee the allocation of money has to be given to it because we see, I just, we just see this creep, you know, and Democrats especially love to give power to the executive because they think the administrative state is the, just the cat's pajamas. And so we have to have a court up there that's got some, Got some uh, guts to do this stuff. They've been gutsy on a few things, and other things they've just ran away from. Can't read them. They got smart enough people up there, except for a couple, and we'll have to see what they do. Keep up the good work, folks. Talk to you next week.